Well, the Bible tells us that Christians are supposed to grow. Jesus says that Christians are like branches that are plugged into the trunk and they're supposed to grow and bear fruit. Peter said that Christians are to long for and live on the true milk of the word and we grow thereby. Peter ended his second letter, 2 Peter, by saying, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Christians are supposed to grow. And what's more, Jesus has a plan for your growth if you're a Christian. He has a plan. It seems like today in our culture, everyone has a plan for their health. Probably not written out, but somewhere in the back of your mind, you have some things to do, some things not to do. Kind of two informal, unwritten down lists. Things to avoid, things you probably should do. So some people run five miles a day, some people walk. 20 minutes, some do stretches, some do hot yoga, uh, not hot Yoda, it's different. Some people lift lots of free weight, some people eat mag- eggs and meat and butter, and others think that's bad for you. Some embrace Eastern medicine and others think it's voodoo. So we have these lists, and I don't know about you, but my lists have changed over the years. This is an area where I submit myself to my wife. Because she knows more than I do. And so she tells me what to take and what not to eat and what I should, what I should change. And so sometimes things go from a, a good list to a bad list or bad list to a good list or something gets added to the good list. I don't know about you, but you wonder sometimes how many more times the lists will change. Who's right? Do we really know? Oh, sure, some ideas are more right than others. And of course we should... Take time to read and think about this and, and pursue health to the glory of God. But, but sometimes I feel like it's a, a bit of a crapshoot, don't you? Wouldn't it be nice if there was a 67th book of the Bible called Health and God told us how much to exercise and how much to eat and what to eat and, and when to do these things and take these supplements? Oh, God didn't do that. But his word, more importantly, does tell Christians how to maintain themselves spiritually and how to grow spiritually. He's given us a plan for our growth, for our health. And the book of Ephesians is one of the best places to see this. So if you have a Bible with you, turn to the book of Ephesians in the New Testament. It's a six-chapter summary of Christianity. If you're not a Christian... Reading the book of Ephesians, or reading the book of Ephesians even better, with a Christian friend who can explain some things to you, might be a great way to explore Christianity. Six-chapter summary of Christianity. The first three chapters, you might know, have to do with foundational things. Uh, Who is God? What is his plan? Who is Jesus? What did he do? Who are we, and what are we in light of him if we have his grace and mercy? The last three chapters of the book of Ephesians give us, well, this multi-layered plan for how to live the Christian life. But the very first thing that Paul talks about in this plan for our growth is our connection to each other, our connection in the church. It's not the only thing that Paul talks about in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. No, he'll talk about marriage, and he'll talk about work, and he'll talk about putting on the armor of God, and prayer, and Bible, and all that. But the very first thing, and one of the longest of the things he mentions, about how Christians grow, how they live in light 
of what he's talked about in the first three chapters is how they connect to each other, how the church is the church. So let's just start with this. When I began with the question that Jesus has a plan for your growth, what is it? What came to mind? What did you think was the plan for your growth according to Jesus in the Bible? Bible as part of the plan? Sure, it is. Indeed it is. Prayer? Again, yes. And amen, it's part of the plan, no doubt. Maybe you thought of a specific doctrinal truth, like living in light of the gospel. You get a hold of that, and that's how Christians grow. And again, that's true. There's a lot of truth to that. That's very central to the motivation and the power to live out the gospel in the Christian life. But, but maybe many of us didn't think about the church. Most Christians don't think of the church as a central part of God's plan for their growth. Some Christians think of the church as something like the hospital functions for everyday life. So when you're hurt, you go and you get some extra help. And the more sick you are, the more hurt you are, the more help you need from the hospital. There's a sense in which that's true, but hopefully the church is a place where health flourishes and grows and we don't just tap into it when we're sick or when we're hurt hopefully it's not this thing that just helps us but it's more of who we are so last week and this week we're talking about the church next week lord willing we'll get back to our series in the book of psalms Uh, i'd encourage you to invite a friend to come along Uh, it's sort of a kickoff sunday we always make the the sunday after labor day sort of a all right we're back fully in the saddle the post-summer saddle And uh, so we'll get back to the book of Psalms when we do that. Last week, we looked at Acts chapter 2. In fact, keep your finger in Ephesians 4. Let's do this. Turn back to Acts chapter 2 for a quick review. A quick review of what we saw last week. We'll come back to Ephesians 4. But in Acts 2, we've read uh, several verses there. The one that summarized everything I was trying to say last week is verse 41. It says, so those who received his word, Peter's preaching, were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So last Sunday I gave three B's summarizing this verse. That there's belief, then baptism, then belonging, identity, added to their Number. That's what it says. And when I say belonging, I said last week, what I mean by belonging is overtly and officially, identifiably joining with a local body of imperfect Christians to do what Jesus said they should do and to hold each other accountable to do it. That's the church. That's what we sometimes refer to as membership. Now, what I said we would deal with this week is what that looks like. What does it mean to belong in the church? It's not just to join. It's not just to go through a class or to sign a covenant of fellowship. That's not a small part of it. That's overtly, objectively, officially, identifiably joining yourself to a body of local Christians. But you have to do what Jesus said you should do. So look down in Acts 2, verse 42 and following. I won't read each verse, but I'll just highlight the things that they did. They devoted themselves to several things. There are four, right in verse 42. Doctrine, 
or teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship, to the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. In verse 43, we say we see that they awed what God was doing in their midst. They watched for God's work, and they awed what he did in their midst. You see down in verse 44, they're giving, they're sharing. Verse 45 as well, they're meeting needs. They're living simply where they need to, giving sacrificially to meet those needs in the body. They're meeting together. In verse 46, it says they're attending the temple together. We don't attend temple. This isn't a New Testament temple, but this is a transitional period in in the history of the church. And so what what do Jews do? Even if they're converted Jews, even if they're Christian Jews, what do they do? Well, they're used to going to temple. So they're meeting together, and they're meeting in the temple and also house to house. So there's hospitality. They're, verse 46, breaking bread in their homes. They're sharing life together, sharing meals together. There's happiness. They're glad and generous in their heart. Verse 47, they're praising God. Also says in verse 47, they're light. Like Jesus says, salt and light. They're light in their community. They're having favor with all the people. And there's multiplication taking place here. They saw many added to their number as the Lord saw fit. Now, if Acts 2 is the story of what the church is supposed to do, and I think it is, if it paints the picture of what the church is to be and to do, I think it does, then Ephesians 4 tells us why. Ephesians 4, turn back there, gives us the DNA of Acts 2. It gives us the DNA it tells us what's going on behind the scenes as they did these certain things. Acts 2 gives the action items. Ephesians 4 gives something of motive and aim, some of the more ethereal things. Let me read it to you. Ephesians 4, we'll read the first 16 verses together. Where Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, notice all of the church-y kind of things he's going to list here. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, 
so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is God's word. What we see in verses 1 to 16 is what we have in common in the church, what we all share. First, we share a calling. It's a shared calling, verse 1. There, Paul refers to the calling to which you have been called at the end of verse 1. Now, that's what Paul's been unpacking for three chapters before he got to chapter 4, verse 1. The calling to which you've been called. Now, let me just show you some highlights. I've already said 1 through 3. Chapters 1 through 3 give us the foundation of the Christian life, of Christianity. And then chapters 4 and 5 and 6 get practical. But let me show you some things in Ephesians 1 through 3 about the calling to which you've been called. Look at chapter 1, verse 7. Where Paul says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And then he describes that grace in a different way in chapter 2, verse 1. Here's the problem. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. But, look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now look at chapter 2, verse 12. Picking up in the middle, he says, You were once separated from Christ, you Gentiles. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's the calling to which you've been called. And in verse 15, his plan is to create in himself, in Jesus, one new man in place of the two, uh, the two of Jew and Gentile. One new man making peace between them Verse 16, that he might reconcile us, both Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross. Or to summarize it in the words of chapter 3, verse 6, one more. Gentiles now are fellow heirs. Heirs of the promise, heirs of the covenant, heirs of the fathers, heirs of God's word, heirs of God's family. Members of the same body. Partakers of the promise in Christ through Jesus, through the gospel. John Stott summarizes these three chapters wonderfully like this. For three chapters, he says, Paul's been unfolding for his readers the eternal purpose of God, which was being worked out in history through Jesus Christ, who died for sinners and was raised from death. God is now creating something entirely new. Not just a new life for individuals, but a new society. Paul sees an alienated humanity 
being reconciled, a fractured humanity being united, even a whole new humanity being created. That's the calling with which you were called. That's what Paul means in chapter 4, verse 1. And he writes that as a prisoner. He says he's a prisoner for the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1. Reminding them that he's suffering for this calling. This calling is worth suffering for. It's worth testifying of. It's worth resisting authority in light of when that's necessary. He's a prisoner of the Lord. And so he urges them with that kind of bond, literally a bond in prison. He urges them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which they have been called. What does it mean to walk in a manner worthy? But walk doesn't mean walk here, not literally. Walk is a a way of describing the Christian life. The Christian life is like a pilgrimage. It's a process. There's a path that we're supposed to grow. Eventually we'll meet that celestial city, as John Bunyan called it. Until then, there's a pilgrimage. And there are different hiccups along the way, different helps along the way. It's a walk. And we are supposed to walk worthy of that calling. Now, we probably want to soften that. Worthy of that calling. There's just no softening it, though. I mean, who's worthy of that calling? Well, on the one hand, no one is ever and will ever be worthy of the calling of Jesus Christ, who died in our place, was raised victorious, who's creating a new humanity, and puts us in it simply by grace, not because we deserve it. No one walks worthy of that. And yet the language is undeniable. The word for worthy is a word where we get our our English word axiom. It's a word that has to do with scales. The weight of your calling on one side, your walk on the other. Now we know in reality it just goes boom. This one's big time heavy, eternally, infinitely heavy, and our walk is wimpy and light. But Paul calls us to walk worthy of that calling. It's not the first commandment in the Bible that we'll never actually fully obey Jesus said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And here, Paul says, walk worthy. It's what we strive for. No, we'll never be worthy. We could never pay it back. But it's what we aim for. It's what we want. Simply put, we want to live in light of the calling with which we've been called. That's Paul's whole point. That's why Ephesians has a big split down the middle. The things that Jesus did. And now, in light of that, here's what he calls you to do. To walk worthy. So what is the worthy walk? What's it mean to live in light of Ephesians 1 through 3? Well, secondly, it's a shared attitude. There's a shared attitude. Uh, Maybe attitude isn't the right word. Verses 2 to 3 talk about an attitude for sure, but they talk about an attitude which leads to actions and actions which have a clear aim. The aim, if we can skip to that, is in verse 3. Look at verse 3. The aim is that we would be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Whatever he's going to talk about from here on out relates to unity and peace with one another in the body of Christ. That's what it 
means in part to walk in light of our calling. But what's behind that? Well, back to verse 2, the beginning. What's behind that is this attitude, humility. Literally, lowliness of mind. Not thinking high of ourselves, but low of ourselves. If you think, oh, surely the Bible wouldn't encourage that. Well, the Bible isn't critiquing a proper self-confidence, but it is critiquing a haughty spirit. It is critiquing trust in self. And it is critiquing that thing of us thinking we're better than others in the world in small or big ways revolves around us. You see, even Jesus had lowliness of mind. Philippians 2 There, Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Let that not be any motivation. But in humility, consider others more significant than yourselves. Everyone around you, let them be considered more significant than you. Let each one of you not only look out for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then Paul goes on from there to describe that mind of Christ Jesus and his humble coming, his humble indwelling, his humble life, his humble servantry, and culminating in that humble sacrifice upon the cross on our behalf. Paul says, you want to know how to relate to each other? Look at Christ. Look at the way he served. Look at the way he sacrificed. Look at the way he didn't look out for his own interests, but the interests of others. He wasn't driven by ambition or conceit, but in humility he served and gave. Humility. Paul says in Ephesians 4, gentleness. The attitude of humility is going to lead, hopefully, to an attitude of not being harsh, not being easily provoked, Remember, Proverbs says, a soft answer turns away wrath. But harsh words stir it up. We should be gentle like Jesus. He was gentle and lowly in spirit, he said of himself. We should be patient. Because God has been patient to us. In Jesus, he has been, literally it means here, patience, suffering long. He's forgiving He's not returning evil for evil. And Christians should be suffering long with each other, not returning evil for evil, quick to forgive, slow to take an offense, patient with each other. Like it says in Romans 12, verse 15, we should rejoice with those who rejoice. Our our heartstrings should be tied up with theirs. So we should weep when they weep. We should live in harmony with one another. And we shouldn't be haughty. We should associate with the lowly like Jesus did. Never wise in our own sight. Not repaying anyone evil for evil. But doing what's honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. It takes two to tango. So you... You sometimes can try to be peaceable and the person on the other end just doesn't want to be peaceable. They are they're steadfast in their war against you. So Paul recognizes that it's not totally up to you. You don't hold all of the cards, but you hold many of them. 
As much as it depends on you, be at peace with all, especially in the church. Bear with one another, he says in verse 2. Literally, it means enduring. Endure one another. Put up with one another. And I'm really glad Paul put that in there. I really am. You see, on the one hand, Paul has such lofty expectations that he says, walk worthy of the calling of being resurrected from the dead into Christ Jesus. Be worthy. Walk worthy of what he's done for you. On the other hand, Paul is so realistic here. Isn't he saying, put up with one another? Which means you don't have to wait for uber love overflowing in your heart. It is the very love of God seeing everyone just like God sees them in nothing less. And then and only then you'll be gentle and, and patient and humble and kind. And you'll take care of them like Jesus took care of them. He says, love them, be patient, gentle with them, yes. He'll get to love in just a second, but right dab in the middle of all this is just put up with them. Put up with me. Bear with me. Endure me. In love do this, he says, verse 2. In love. Remember 1 Corinthians 13? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It thinks others are more important. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at another's wrongdoing when they fall, when they mess up, when they're embarrassed. But it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love covers a multitude of sins. Not least, annoyances, differences, oil and water. We just don't seem to get along. Love covers a multitude of sins. Why? Because that's how we've been loved. We forgive as forgiven. Remember that parable Jesus taught? About the man who was forgiven much, a huge debt. You could never repay it. He's forgiven a whole lot. Then there's this other man who's only forgiven a little bit. But what does he do? He's forgiven a little debt and he goes out and he shake someone who owes him some money. He's not thankful. He doesn't get forgiveness. Forgiven much. We forgive much. Paul says in Romans 12, let love be genuine. Love one another with brotherly affection. That takes work. That takes time. That takes relationship. Outdo one another, Paul says, in showing honor. Man, we need this verse. Outdo one another in showing honor. A great book on this I'd recommend is by Sam Crabtree called Practicing Affirmation. You know, God, if we're Christians, he affirms us in his word over and over again. His promises are affirmation. I don't know about you, but I am ten times better at critique. Maybe a hundred times better, maybe a thousand times better at critique than I am affirmation. I think the critique is loving, right? I think it's for your good. But I don't work at speaking 
the truth of love into your heart and my heart and others, my family, my fellow pastors like I should. We need love. We need to show love. John Owen the Puritan said, Take a bunch of sticks, some long and some short, some great and some little, some straight and some crooked. As long as there is a good, firm band around them, you may carry them wherever you please. But break the band and everything will fall apart. Everyone's crookedness will be apparent. One stick will be too long, one too short, one too big, one too little. There's no way of keeping them together. All the order of the world will never keep a church together if the band of love be lost. We need love. That's what we share. That kind of heart attitude and aim. Thirdly, we share a foundation. There's a shared foundation, verses 4 through 6. These are the verses with the one, 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 repeated again and again, similar to how he sang this morning about the church's one foundation. He says in verse 4, there's one body. Here he means the universal church, the saved of all times at all places. But he's going to get specific about how that's expressed in local congregations like this one. So whatever's true of the universal body, that there's one body, and they share in that? It's even more true as it's experienced on a local level. There's one body, there's one spirit. Well, yeah, there's only one spirit for the whole universal church in the whole world. And yet, in a local congregation, we share in the spirit in specific ways that I don't get to share with brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. We share in the spirit's presence as we worship we we share in the spirit's help as we pray we share in one hope that's the calling with which you have been called that hope that in christ jesus you would have his blessings you would be raised from death to life and life eternal One Lord, he says in verse 5. We share one Lord, one faith. There's only one baptism. So whatever differences we have in any given congregation, economical, cultural, physical differences, emotional differences, differences of personality, preferences, differences, matters not we share in what is the most important thing in all the world the most important things in all the world the most fundamental things in all the world we share something cosmic spiritual eternal and god given one lord one faith one baptism and then verse 6 he just summarizes it all we share one god and father of all who's over all and through all and in all These things should be at the heart of our identity. These things should be what keep us together. These things should be the basis for us endeavoring to pursue unity and peace. Gentleness, love, patience, kindness, humility... These things sit upon, stand upon one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. The one who's in all and over all and through all. 
which means that there's some theological, objective, truth-oriented, and unchanging things that we stand upon and we share and we root our commitment to each other in. We don't just commit to each other or like each other because we're like each other or because we're liked by the other. We share too much. Too much is at stake. Too much is at stake to be so superficial. God help us. The shared foundation. Fourthly, there's shared gifts in this passage. Shared gifts. Verses 7 and 12. Now here I'm using the word shared in a slightly different way than I have been using it. When I spoke of a shared foundation in the previous verses, I was saying that the foundation was the same for all of us, right? So we shared it. But with the gifts in verses 7 and 12, it's not that we all have the same gifts. In fact, as we'll see, it's just the opposite. What Paul says here is that we each have our own gift. There's diversity of the gifts, but we are to share our gifts with each other. So look at verse 7. He says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. It's not clear yet from that verse what these gifts are and what they're for, but we can cheat and look down to verse 16. Look down there where it says, The whole body, the church, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, each part, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Different parts doing different things in the body for the good of the whole. Each part, in verse 16, is what we would call a gift in other parts of the Bible and other parts of Ephesians 4. It's a gift. It's similar to the way the world talks about a gifted kid or that's a gifted athlete. I mean, he's been given something special. It's unique. He's got this thing. But in the world, when people talk about a gifted kid, it's... It's for the kid's own good, right? He might make some millions on that gifted brain, and he might make some millions and become famous on that gifted uh, skill and that gifted body uh, to be an amazing athlete. But every Christian is gifted, gifted for the good of others, gifted to give back, kind of like maybe a, a more moral athlete would think, I'm gifted, I've been gifted, so it's kind of my responsibility to give back to the community. Well, in a similar way, but different, Christians are gifted, but they're gifted for the good of others. And we'll come back to that, but notice what happens in verse 8. In verse 8, Paul starts to unpack this whole gifting thing, but he does it by quoting from Psalm 68. And then he gives the interpretation of it in verses 9 and 10. Let me read verses 8 through 10 of Ephesians 4. He says, therefore, it says, quoting Psalm 68, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And then here's the commentary, the exposition, the sermon. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill 
all things. Now that seems awfully confusing, doesn't it? It did to me when I read it. But it's really important, so I want to take some time to try to unpack this a little bit and tell you why Paul quoted from Psalm 68 and put it here. Psalm 68 is a call for God to come and for God to rescue his people in power. And it harkens back to the Exodus story where God came and rescued his people out of bondage and slavery. And he led them out, led them out of Egypt. He led them through the land, right? He led them into a land, a land that would be of his presence. And eventually, by the time of David, he led them up Mount Jerusalem to the dwelling place of God. Remember the Ark of the Covenant? That's where David dances naked, by the way. You know that part of the story. I bet if you've been a Christian for a while, why did he get so excited? He took some clothes off, started dancing? Because God's presence was now ascending. Notice that word? Ascending. Ascending to his to his resting place. He finally completed the rescue. He led them out, led them through, led them into, and then led them up. He ascended. Paul takes that from Psalm 68 and he applies it to Jesus. And he says, Jesus ascended in the resurrection and later in his ascension when he went to heaven. And of course, that implies, he says, that Jesus first had to descend. He had to come to earth. The incarnation, we call it. The infleshing of God in the person of Jesus. And not just came to earth, but it says, verse 9, into the lower regions of the earth. He was buried. He died. He descended in flesh and in death. And yet he ascended victoriously in life, and he has led us up with him. We've been raised with Christ. Or Ephesians 1.3, the way he puts it there is, we've been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places where Christ is. That's where our gifts are. He led us out of bondage, and he's now our... We're now his happy captives. Did you notice the word quoted from Psalm 68? He led a host of captives. Who's that? That's us. Oh, no, no, we wouldn't talk about us being captives to Jesus, would we? Jesus, uh, Paul said that he was a prisoner of the Lord. We are bond servants. Paul reckons himself that many times in Scripture. Yes, we're captives. But we're happy captives. We're captives who are free in him, free from bondage and slavery. We're captives who've been given gifts. And that leads to verse 11, where Paul mentions five different kinds of gifts the whole church benefits from. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Now, throughout church history, these five different names or categories, people, whatever you want to call them, have been interpreted in a variety of ways. In fact, I don't know if I found two commentaries that say the exact same thing. Now, let me take a little bit of time to show you how I come to an understanding of these five things, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, and then I'll explain why it's important for us. To do so, I've got to turn you back, though, to Ephesians 2. Look at Ephesians 2. 
as we keep in mind apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers from verse 11, and we're trying to figure out what these categories are. Apostles pretty easy for us, but from there it goes downhill. Look at chapter 2, verse 19, where Paul says there, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, sometimes in Scripture, prophet is one who preaches. And I'm talking New Testament now. Prophets in the Old Testament are in some ways distinct. But prophets in the New Testament sometimes preach. Prophets in the New Testament sometimes get special revelation from God where it helps his people navigate life in certain ways. So Agabus is a prophet who tells Paul where to go sometimes, right? Or where not to go. Don't go to Rome, you're going to get killed. Paul says, you're probably right. I don't deny the prophecy, but I think I'm supposed to go. And he does. That's a a prophet. But Ephesians 2.20 is talking about apostles and prophets here being the foundation of the household of God. That's saying a lot, isn't it? Look at chapter 3 of Ephesians, verse 3. Where there Paul's talking about the mystery that was made known to me by revelation. The revelation which revealed Jew and Gentile, now one. He says in verse 5, that mystery which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has been now, has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. I think he's talking about scripture writers here. Not all books of the New Testament were written by apostles. Luke is not an apostle. He writes a book. James is called an apostle, but he's not kind of a capital A apostle. When we talk about apostles, we're talking about the 12 and probably plus Paul, the bonus Baker Dozen guy. So, there are other people in the New Testament who are lowercase apostles. James is one. Silas is also called a prophet. Barnabas is called a prophet. These are people who traveled with the apostles, the capital A apostles. So sometimes prophet and apostle can be referring to those who traveled with capital A apostles, represented those capital A apostles, and sometimes wrote scripture as though they were apostles. I think Ephesians 2.20 and Ephesians 3.5 is talking about sort of capital P prophets, i.e. scripture writers. One more passage to show you, 1 Corinthians 12. Turn over there. Remember, we're still trying to figure out Ephesians 11, what it means when it says apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. We're almost there. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 28. Three out of our five are listed here. 1 Corinthians 12, 28 says, God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and then he moves from people to things then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, and various kinds of tongues. The first three are numbered. Now, usually when Paul lists spiritual gifts, every list is different, and they're in no specific order. It's almost like he just kind of threw off possible gifts off the top of his head. But clearly, in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, he's numbering them. He's saying that there's some ranking. There's some logical order. Apostles have to come before prophets. Prophets have to come before teachers. 
I think Ephesians 4.11 is doing something similar. It's some logical or even chronological order. So look back at Ephesians 4.11. He says, God gave apostles. Capital A, apostles, 12 plus Baker dozen Paul. Then prophets, these non-apostle, but apostle-like guys who worked alongside the apostles and wrote scripture like Luke or James. Evangelists. Now, I don't have time to show you this one, but I, I think this means missionary, what we would call today a missionary. It's someone who's proclaiming the gospel, but he's going with the gospel. He's taking the gospel. So evangelists, missionaries. Then it says shepherds. I think this means pastors. Uh, shepherds and pastors are used interchangeably in Scripture. They're pastoring, they're shepherding. These are people on a local church level who lead flocks. And then in a local church, there are teachers. Those in a local church who exercise a gift of teaching underneath the authority of the shepherds of the church, the elders or pastors of the church. So in our church context, teachers would mean informal teaching, uh, like Sunday school teachers or community group leaders or men's huddle leaders or women's ministry teachers. I think that's what it's referring to here when it says teachers. So you can see how there's a progression here, can't you? You can see that there's a chronological order, right? Apostles and prophets get us scripture. But the message of that scripture has to get sent out. It's got to go. You've got to get it to people who haven't heard it. Evangelists or missionaries do that. But then once they see people embrace it, become Christians, he doesn't just leave this evangelist or missionary. He doesn't just say, all right, every now and then you guys should get together for, you know, get to know you time. You're all Christians, so see ya. Hope it goes well. No. Remember, Paul told Titus, I left you in Crete to ordain elders in every city. Point, appoint some leadership. You need shepherds. You need pastors. But pastors can't do all the teaching, and so there are teachers. You can see, Paul isn't just picking five random gifts. He's like he's doing in 1 Corinthians 12. He's giving some kind of chronological or logical order. And if you say, okay, who cares, though? Why would you spend five minutes telling me what these five terms mean and showing me in Scripture why you think so. Well, the next verse is verse 12, Ephesians 4, and it says that these were given to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. This is how the body's built. There's some big femur bones called apostles and prophets. And they're they're missionaries who collect people in. They're like big nets out in the ocean. But then you need shepherds who tend a flock. They're like what pediatricians are as opposed to, to the OB doctor. One gives birth, missionaries, and another one takes care of them when they're sick and needy. They equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ So God has a multi-layered plan to build his church and for his church to be built up in him. We should marvel at what God has invested in his church for its establishment and for its ongoing edification. It goes all the way back to prophets and apostles and missionaries and evangelists and pastors and second grade Sunday school teachers. 
And you notice all of it's building towards or landing on, depending on how you look at it, the church. It's all about the local church, right? It started with apostles 2,000 years ago. Writing stuff to churches who kept it, passed it around. And now it's talking about this thing of pastors and teachers feeding the ministry of the word. It is indeed a ministry of the word. You see that? It's multi-layered. These five things, and they're all about the ministry of the word. Word writers and word takers and word feeders and word teachers. The point is this. Benefit from what God has given. Benefit. Be equipped. God has given his word that you be equipped. God has given teaching in the church so that you be equipped. And he's given these tools that you be equipped so that you do the work of the ministry. This right now, according to Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, what I'm doing isn't ministry, isn't the ministry. It's equipping you for the work of the ministry. You're to do it. That's how the body's built up. So lastly, as we wrap this up, let me show you the shared goal of Ephesians 4. It ends in bullet point form with some things that we're aiming at in all of this. The shared goal, first in verse 13, there's Christ-likeness, where Paul kind of turns the page of the last chapter of the story in the book of the Bible. How the story ends? One day we'll attain to the unity of the faith. Well, we're unified, but not fully, not completely. We still have cracks and fissures. One day we'll attain to the unity of the faith. One one day we'll attain to the knowledge of the Son of God. One day we'll have mature manhood. Oh, we're growing up now. But one day it will be full maturity. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I see more of Christ now in my life than I did a couple of years ago. Praise God for that. But one day we'll all be like him. We share that. We share the goal of Christ-likeness. Of seeing him face to face without sin and being like him. We share that. We also, until then, share the need for discernment. Verse 14. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. One day, we won't have to worry about human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. We'll be with Christ, we'll be like him. There won't be a threat of false teachers. But until then, we need growing, ongoing discernment. Not childlike naivete. Not blown about by, what's that over there? That smells good. What's that over there? That feels pretty good. Oh, I like that. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. Paul says, 2 Timothy 2, one day, church will heap up for itself at their own teachers in, according, in accordance with their own desires. They'll seek their ears to be tickled. We need the church for discernment. We need pastors for discernment. We need elders who labor in the word and doctrine for discernment. We need you on guard for discernment. We share the goal also in the meantime and part of it, a strategic conversation. Part of our discernment is strategic conversation. What it says in verse 15, speaking the truth in love. Not nicely getting something off your chest. 
That's how most people seem to use speak the truth in love today, even in the world. A lot of people speak the truth in love these days. It means you really ticked me off with this, but I'm going to say, in love, can I just share this with you? My feelings really hurt when you did that. Or even being mean, but saying it's in love. There are plenty of passages that talk about confronting when someone has offended us, right? If your brother sins against you, go to him. Talk to him about it. This isn't one of them, I don't think. I mean, part of speaking the truth in love is confronting where that's needed, but part of speaking the truth in love is proactively distributing truth to each other. Speaking truth in loving ways, not speaking truth without love, not having love without truth. Both truth and love, and truth and love spoken. And you've got to get, cl- you get close to each other for that. For those kind of intimate conversations that either need confrontation or need edification, instruction, exhortation. You need to get close for that kind of familiarity, comfort, closeness, and intimacy. We're to grow. A shared goal is growth. We're to grow up, verse 15 says, in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. We're to grow in his image. Growth and maturity comes through thoughtful and purposeful unity. That's the sentence I would use to summarize this passage. Growth, maturity, they come through thoughtful and purposeful unity. And the means by which that happens is, verse 16, bodybuilding. Yeah, spiritual bodybuilding. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So let me end this by asking just a few questions. Are you in the body of Christ? Are you in him? Have you been forgiven? Is what is said in Ephesians 1 through 3 true of you? Have you been redeemed by his blood? Have you put your faith in him? Do you believe he's raised you from death to life and all his gifts and blessings are yours? I hope so. I hope so. Let us know what questions we can answer if not. Let us know how we can serve you and show you in the Bible what the gospel is and what Jesus came to do for, for us. If you're a Christian, let me ask, have you overtly and officially identified yourself with a local body? Yeah, there's some things about the universal church here, but they get expressed in real families. They get expressed in really concrete ways, in relationships, long-term ones. Speak the truth and love happens in a church, an institutional church with leadership, pastors, teachers. Are you identifying with the body? Are you benefiting from that body? Have you grown? Are you benefiting from Desert Springs Church? If not, let's talk. Let us know how we can serve you. Let us know what we're not doing. But even better, let's ask this question of all ourselves. Is the body benefiting from me? In the last year, has Desert Springs Church grown or matured? In any way, because of you? Are you close enough for that to happen? Are you using your gifts that Jesus died 
and was raised victoriously for those gifts which he gives to his captives, gives for the use of his body, the church. You using those gifts? You know, your gifts are not supposed to stop with you. Your gifts are not about you. Your gifts are not about your self-fulfillment. We tend to think of our gifting and being used as our identity. This is who I am. This is how people know me. This is how I feel effective. Some of that's not all wrong. But friend, isn't Paul putting that on its head? Isn't this passage putting that on its head and saying your gifts are not for the purpose of your sense of fulfillment your gifts are for the purpose of his plan being fulfilled and guess what when his plan is fulfilled and his body is built up that is the place of greatest fulfillment not you in the spotlight not you running all over crazy like a chicken with the head cut off god According to Ephesians 4, doesn't want you to grow with the help of the church. He wants the church to grow, and he invites you to help. There's a big difference. And guess what? When you're in the church, and you help, and the church grows, you're part of the church, and so you're benefited too. Take your eyes off yourself. Focus on his body. He died for his bride. He died to give gifts. Benefit from those gifts. Give to others with those gifts. He's victorious. He's the king. He's our Lord. And we're his bride, his body, the church.